Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Sorry it's been a minute. I've been off for a few weeks because, to be quite honest, I needed a break. And I didn't realize just how much I needed a break. In July, I take the month off from preaching to do, uh, we do a family vacation usually for a week. And then I use the rest of the month for study break. And I tell you, I'll tell you, I'm going to tell you, uh, three and a half weeks in to July, I, for the first time, felt this excitement to preach again that I hadn't felt in a while. I'd gotten to the point where I was really just sick of hearing myself talk and I didn't know it. Like I couldn't name what I was experiencing or going through or how I felt. And this, you could probably see on the podcast, got a little sporadic to June and then July we shut her down for a little while while I was going through my work uh, study break. And anyway, I'm I'm back. Uh, I've got a couple of Excuse me. I've got a couple episodes in the can already, and I, I've got a lot of great things lined up that I'm excited for you to hear. Um, And and all that to say, I I just need a break, but I'm I'm back now. And uh, today we've got Dr. Russell Moore, and uh, let me—I'll tell you more about him in just one second. But let me make uh, just a personal observation. Uh, Sometimes you you don't know what you're going through until you step back and take a break. And I know uh, it is a luxury that not everyone has to find a way to get a little bit of space. But if you can, I would highly recommend it. I mean, there's a reason that God, who created the universe in six days, decided on day seven to take a break and that Jesus would constantly withdraw for rest. It's a normal part of being a human. And I know some people say, well, I'm never going to rest or I'll rest when I'm dead or the devil doesn't take a day off, so I'm not going to take a day off. Well, you know, someone once said that to me uh, years ago. Well, the devil never takes a day off, so I'm not going to take a day off. And I think any time that we're trying to compare ourselves to the devil, it's probably not a good thing. The devil doesn't take a day off. God does. Pick which one you want to be like. I mean, it seems like it's an easy choice, but it's hard to make in the moment. And so... Uh, if you need to create some space for yourself uh, to slow down, to listen, to be present, I'd highly encourage you you can do it if you can. But like finish the podcast episode. Like don't don't take a break until after listening to Russell Moore. Now, uh, Russell Moore is a Baptist guy. He was the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention for almost a decade. And before that, he was the dean at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where he taught uh, theology and ethics. He, he's, a, he's a Baptist dude. And he's now the chief editor, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, which I believe a uh, friend of the show, uh, Andy Crouch, used to have that job. Just fun little circle there. Um, if you don't know Russell Moore, though, he he spoke out against the abuse in the Baptist church, the sexual abuse that was uh, swept under the rug. He spoke out against the Trumpism, I guess that's the language for it, uh, in the Baptist um, church. And t- let me say what I think he means by that. Um, this isn't against being a Republican or why you should be a Democrat. That's the wrong conversation. Um, it's the way that one has elevated one's uh, love and adoration of a political party or specifically a political candidate um, at the expense of the church. And Russell was like a lot of people who said, hey, um, 
some things are just not acceptable. Like we can't talk like this. We can't treat people like this. And what happened after he spoke out from an outsider perspective like myself was pretty unbelievable. And you'll hear him talk about some of that. But if you don't have the backstory for this conversation, you need to know that this is um, a a guy who uh, spoke truth to uh, a group of people that just didn't want to hear it. And even if you're not Baptist, like myself, I think there's a lot that we can learn from this story. And this is um, this is a great conversation. So I uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, he has got a new book that is coming out. Uh, I think it'll be out right now. The title is Losing Our Religion, which is a nice shout out to the R.E.M. song that came out, I think, like in the 90s. And I think we're going to talk about that in the podcast. But the book is Losing Our Religion. My guest is Dr. Russell Moore. So check it out. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. It is my honor today to be joined from Nashville, Tennessee by Dr. Russell Moore. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Outstanding. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. I, um, I'm just, We're going to just jump right into this book. Uh, I started reading the book, and the new book is entitled Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America. And I'm reading the book, and you start off with a perfectly placed thanks Obama. You tell a story of growing up a good old Baptist who never drank until you were at the White House. You got to tell us that story. Well, at the, at the White House Christmas party, they have two kinds of eggnog, the naughty and the nice. Uh-huh. And apparently they mixed them up because mm-hmm. I started to think, what is going on? I, I uh, am feeling almost lightheaded. And uh, we eventually... Uh, found out they accidentally mixed the naughty and nice up. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it's a great story to say that the president got you drunk for the first time. I mean, <laughs> well, it I probably is an exaggeration. I, I, I wasn't drunk. <laughs> Let me clarify. I wasn't. I wasn't drunk. But uh, but yeah, I I grew up in uh, in a situation where I was a, I was a very um, obedient Baptist kid. I I never really got into. Uh, any trouble. My my troubles were all internal and not external misbehavior. Mm-hmm. I grew up Church of Christ, still am Church of Christ, and grew up in a teetotaler home, didn't drink in college, and I got married uh, first year of seminary, and I get married in Austin, where my wife is from, but we get married not at a Church of Christ church, but a Christian church. And ah. so we wanted to receive communion during the service, and I didn't realize that they used the real stuff, not grape juice. And yeah. so during my wedding, I drank, I said, oh, what is going on here? This is not <laughs> Church of Christ communion. It was the real stuff. So I, too, had an experience stepping outside my background in a surprising fashion. <laughs> So I, I read the opening line, yet or you know, opening few pages. You got a, a perfectly placed "Thanks Obama" joke in there, going really well. And then, within uh, like a minute or two, I realized, oh my goodness, like you are really um, writing some strong words that are going to create no small amount of controversy when you write um, so directly and so prophetically towards a situation like American Christianity and what it is today, what are you hoping the readers experience as you talk so directly about uh, the way you understand American Christianity today? Well, I think the main uh, main thing is for people who think they're crazy uh, to know that they're not alone. 
Um, I think there there are a lot of people who are experiencing this time of turbulence and uh, they feel really alone and isolated. And I think there are some people who are uh, losing their faith or maybe feel as though they're about to lose their faith because they're thinking nobody gets that this is not, this doesn't line up with the New Testament for me. And so that's the that's the main thing. I think there are two dangers that we can uh, fall into. One of them is sort of, uh, well, just emphasize the good, which ends up being uh, public relations. And it also is very easily uh, seen through by people who have experienced uh, the, the, the very real uh, problem here. But the other is cynicism. A kind of cynicism that says, well, then let's just retreat into despair. So, and that's, yeah. that's why I use the imagery of altar call, because um, altar call is both bad news and good news. It's, it's bad news in the sense that uh, you're at the end of your own, depend, your own self-dependence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, of course, very good news because there's a gospel, a resurrected Christ. And that's, that's my conviction here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and altar call is a very fitting metaphor that you use, and it makes a whole lot of sense the way you uh, describe it throughout the book. Um, but you, you, in the early pages of the book, talk about how uh, you found yourself not so much as giving the altar call, but kind of founding yourself in the middle of being the recipient. And maybe more accurately stated, you found yourself in the inquisition of heresy, where you, um, PhD, uh, Baptist, longtime leader in the Baptist church, found yourself on the other end of what someone who does what you and I do for a living as pastors, where people were, were questioning you. Uh, probably some of my listeners aren't 100% familiar with exactly the story of, of how that happened. Uh, so can you just give it like a brief thumbnail of how you found yourself in that experience and what it was like for you? Well, I think it's, it's very similar to the experience that I um, hear from pastors all over the country where there's a small group of people but who are able to completely transform the temperature of a church or a denomination or, or anything else. And that's, that's what was happening uh, here. It wasn't, it wasn't what went on at our annual meetings, which is when the churches send delegates, we called them messengers. Um, I never left one of those not feeling completely affirmed, encouraged, and loved. Uh, it was what happened between the meetings. And, uh, and often I, I just see that same pattern showing up all the time. And uh, it used to be that I would say to a pastor, I remember very vividly a time when a pastor was telling me about this situation in his church. And I said, well, you know, how many people are you talking about here? And he said, about 10% of the congregation. I said, okay, well, uh, don't abandon the 90% because of that 10%. But um, if the 90% don't really get what's happening with the 10% or however, however much it is, um, that, can, that can change everything. And uh-huh. so I was in a situation where I realized I can win this uh, I can just take it to the convention, meaning the the, the larger denomination, yep. and and um, and they'll they'll be there for me. But I didn't I didn't want to be the kind of person I would have to become 
uh, in order to do that because that's just not what my calling is. What kind of person do you think you'd have to be to play that game? Um, I think it would have to be just an ongoing sort of uh, trench warfare, um, which I, I don't... I started to say I don't mind warfare. I always mind warfare, but I'm I'm willing to do warfare for Christ. I'm not I'm not willing to give uh, my life doing warfare for uh, denominational bureaucracy. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. I couldn't see investing that. And I I think what what I I've seen happen with a lot of people when they get in a situation like that is it consumes. Um, it consumes them. I mean, they, they become uh, they become warriors in the worst sense. And I was yeah. afraid that would happen to me. Can I get you to flesh out what you think a warrior in the worst sense looks like as someone who has to play those sort of political games? Yeah, or somebody who is um, is given over to a constant quarrelsomeness that that wasn't really my temptation uh toward quarrelsomeness but i knew that my temptation would be uh toward a kind of um of resignation uh to the, the way that things are and i think i would have become very numb and cynical yeah uh i heard you in not so many words, but talk about like despair is one option or you have to become this sort of jaded figure who's playing the same game as everyone else. Yeah. You have a, a quote in the book where uh, I guess it was probably one of those minority uh, dissenting voices said something directly to you like our wives and our children are with you and so we can't get rid of you. But then they 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 said they would use psychological warfare. Yeah. Uh, was that an explicit statement yes. or was that just yes wow. that's that's what was so uh astounding to be about it i mean i'm not naive enough to know that people don't do that but i couldn't believe that it was said uh and there were several moments like that where it was i i, I can't believe that this is actually um happening and i think um, in this person's mind, it was a sense of, um, I think they probably would have seen it as standing up for yeah. Christ as they understood, uh, him. I'm sure they did, but yeah. yeah. What is the line where, uh, uh, people are no more at their worst than when they think they're fighting for God. Or there's some line about that. There's definitely a, a truth that we've all experienced that if someone thinks 100% uh, that, that God hates all the same people that they hate, that they can do whatever it takes to win that battle. And so before we get into maybe the specifics of um, of what instigated this sort of conflict and found yourself in this situation of either despair or fighting or whatever, um, can you maybe say a word because I know there are other pastors or church leaders uh, or, or just Christians who find themselves in a situation where they go, this is kind of the options that I have. I have despair to kind of check out because I don't want to play these games. Or if I play these games, I end up like like Nietzsche said, where, you know, when you go into the darkness, be careful. You don't, or when you fight a monster, be careful. You don't become a monster. Like yeah. those seem like the only two options. What What is your encouragement to those people? Well, I would say it's really, it, it's not easy to figure out. Because I think that um, there's always, when it comes to this question of do I leave or do I stay, 
my default was always to stay because mm-hmm. I, I had this sense of uh, loyalty, still do in a lot, in a lot of, of ways, uh, to my Southern Baptist identity. And so I would stay and stay and stay. Um, and there are other people, I think, who maybe their first impulse is to, is to leave. And it's not always easy to tell which is the right thing to do because I've seen people do the wrong thing in both of those. I've seen some people who uh, sort of leave too early because they think, well, uh, there's got to be a place where this isn't there. And that's what I was saying to myself for a long time is to say, you know, every – Every place has problems, and that's especially true at a time like this in uh, American life. Um, and so just just uh, keep pressing. Um, but there does come a point where someone says, in order to really carry out what God's called me to do, I'm going to have to do it somewhere other than, than here. And, and sometimes what happens with people is, that they get, especially people who are kind of grounded in loyalty, they get a kind of um, guilt uh, about that. And, and I think some of that is because we have, we have rightly um, talked about uh, for years and years and years, pastors and uh, leaders who don't stay and, and remain rooted where they are, because there is a real problem of people just uprooting and, and leaving every, every few years. But that's sometimes the wrong people hear that admonition. And they're the people who are in a situation that really is unhealthy and that they're not really able to change. And so once you get to that point, um, I would say talk to people who really know you. And and I mean, not not people who um, need you or... uh, or are uh, sort of in the ministry there with you, but talk to people that that really know you for you and say, can you help me to check my motives here and figure out if what I'm doing is right? And that's that's usually, I think, really helpful. One of the people that I assume knows you the best is your wife, who Uh uh, in the book you referenced that she said, um, if you stay here in the Southern Baptist Convention, we will be into in a interreligious or inter whatever marriage because she was gone, yeah. and she she was saying that. So it seems like that's a pretty clear voice in your head when your wife is saying or your spouse is saying that. Um, can I ask? It's been some time since this transpired. It's been some time since um, obviously the subject matter of the book took place. You're still a part of a church. You're still part of Christianity, of course. Um, was your expectation for it being a healthier place for you to flourish in the calling you have for God's life been realized? Yes. Has it been ex- what you want it to be? Yes. Oh, 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 yes, definitely. And uh, uh, definitely. And I think uh, one of the things that um, there are times when I think, why didn't I, um, why didn't I do that sooner? And there are other times when I, I feel, um, I feel guilty for, for leaving, but it's not because I'm second guessing sort of what the situation was like. It's that I have this um, tendency, and a friend of mine said this to me uh, in the middle of all of this. He says, you really don't, and he's known me for 
you know, 30 years. He said, you don't really have the, um, you don't really have the tendency toward bitterness uh, or resentment. You have the opposite problem, which is a kind of nostalgia. And what happens is you kind of edit out um, all of the, uh, all of the bad things. And I think that's true. I, I do do that. And he said, I'm going to be here to remind you. Uh, and it's kind of, I, I saw this, uh, I can't even remember who it was, but who was writing about having been um, an alcoholic or a drug addict or something like that, who put a sign on her mirror that said it really was that bad because mm -hmm. she knew if she didn't remind herself of that, she would get to the point where she would think, you know, maybe I can slide on back into those old, uh, those old places. And it really was that bad. She needed to, to know that in order to move on with that. So if you didn't have someone reminding you that it was that bad, uh, the way that you're wired would have you minimize the trauma, the conflict that you went through and you would find yourself back in it. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that, um, I think that I, uh, I default to minimizing it. I mean, even just, uh, yeah. my wife pointed out in terms of even just some of the conversations I've had around uh, the book, uh, I always, uh, default to, you know, most people are great, uh, and, and are supporting that's true. Uh, mm -hmm. but it's, it's almost as though I have to keep, uh, yeah. Keep defaulting to that. Yeah. Yeah, I understand. Uh, okay, we're going to get into the subject matter of what made you make the transition. W one final question. One of the endorsers for the book is the often mistake for your family member, Beth Moore, who yeah. has the same last name as you, obviously, same spelling. Um, her, her book, which came out recently, also talks about her trajectory leaving Southern Baptist churches. Um, she ended up in a more high church tradition. Your church seems to be, uh, I'm Church of Christ, low church, kind of more like us. Um, did you find yourself wanting to find something similar low church tradition to what you came from, or did you explore other options in a more high church tradition like uh, Beth well, Morgan? Well, I, I, I haven't, um, I haven't shifted, uh, theologically on, on the way that I see the church and, uh, and, and the mission of the church. And so mm -hmm. it was more about finding a community of people who, um, who cared about the same things that I cared about, even if we, if we internally uh, disagree on some really important things, uh, because some of the folks at our church come from an Anglican uh, background, some folks come from a Presbyterian background, some from a Baptist background, others. Um, and so we, we have some differences in understanding, but there's a, uh, a genuine sense of belonging and community in that. So it was, yeah. it was less that I said, okay, here's the kind of church that I want to find and let me go look for it as much as it was, here's a church that I could, um, that I could belong to. And, and one of the ways for that, uh, ways I knew that is because I would find myself uh, sort of slipping in the back of that uh, church sometimes when I just needed to get out of, um, out of a context, not and, and my church, my uh, Baptist church here uh, was, was, and is fantastic. 
And yeah. uh, and I, I could easily have stayed there for the rest of my life and loved every minute. The leadership's great. The people are great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would find myself thinking I need to go someplace uh, that's kind of out of the whole Baptist world. Gotcha. And so I would, I would, um, I would find myself ministered to and drawn to those people. And I think that Understood. was the way that that happened. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Though I uh, was trying to be the champion and the spokesperson on trying to get you and Beth to come to the Church of Christ. <laughs> I don't feel like I got the FaceTime. I feel like I had a good pitch for both of you, but uh, you know, alas, it it didn't work. Um, so well, don't give let's... up on us. We, uh, you know, maybe one day. Hey, okay. Okay, we'll talk more offline, but I've got some options. We've got some we've got Malibu. We've got Pepperdine University. That's a Church of Christ school in Malibu. You have Lipscomb right down the road. We got Lipscomb. I've got a lot of friends in Nashville. We got things to offer you. So, I'll give you the pitch uh, afterwards, but let me jump to um a line in the book that will not be well received by everyone because it is quite a damning quote um for those of us who find ourselves in American Christianity. Uh you, you have a reference uh later in the book by a political uh spokesperson Christopher Fryman, I think that's his name, mm-hmm. where he talks about the monopolization of our our identity by politics. It's kind of a a thing that's happened to all people, but especially in the church. You write this, um behind all of that was a dread deep within me that Christianity might just be Southern culture of politics with Jesus affixed as a hood ornament. That's a pretty terrifying statement. Um, and unfortunately, it's terrifying because many people see that there is definitely reason for that sentence to be written. As you write that sentence, what are you, uh, what are you describing um, for people that read this book, what are you hoping for them to be able to see by a statement like that? Well, because I was uh, somebody who sometimes people will, will ask, uh, were you ever close to losing your faith? And the answer is no. And mm-hmm. the, the reason I think other than for grace of God, but humanly speaking, mm-hmm. I think the reason I wasn't is because I had gone through a uh, manageable crisis, as they call it. Uh, as a 15-year-old, where I started to wonder, is this just, um, is, is this all that this is? Which mm-hmm. terrified me because um, I love Jesus. I love the Bible, and uh, as I do now. And so I worked through that process, and thankfully I had two people, one of them long dead and distant, and one living and close up, uh, my youth pastor at the time, uh, who could show a different reality and, and could mm-hmm. uh, and could guide me through that. And so I think there are a lot of people who don't have that. And, um, and all that they see of Christianity is uh, the politics or the scandals or the cover-ups or any number of other things and aren't able to see Jesus. Mm-hmm. You uh, you referenced the REM song from a few decades ago about losing my religion, and you give a backstory for the song that many of us probably didn't know, that the song isn't so much about doubts as much as it's about anger. And the phrase losing my religion is kind of Southern for I'm losing my manners, I'm not going to act like a good religious person. Yeah. And in some ways, m- many have lost their religion, metaphorically speaking, out of anger for the way that the church doesn't. Uh, appear to believe the things that it ascribes to be true. 
How do you think um, uh, people have seen that lived out? Well, I noticed a shift in in the from the time when I first started in ministry, um, in which at the beginning and for most of my ministry, I mean, there would always be people who are losing their faith and who would come and mm-hmm. say, "I think I'm about, about on the precipice of uh, walking away." But they almost always fell into one of two categories. It was either somebody who was saying, I am filled with doubt. I can't believe some difficult doctrine. Um, The miracles, virgin birth, the resurrection, uh, or uh, issues of the problem of evil, that that kind of thing. Or it was somebody who was saying the the moral uh, demands of the church are too strict and I, I don't want to live by them, usually related to sex, but sometimes other yeah. things. There came a point where I started noticing that more and more people were not uh, upset about those things. They were upset about, is is this it? Is this just a, a means to an end? And what to anyone ultimately wants to know, sometimes not even until their deathbeds, when it comes to something that's making an ultimate claim is if this is a means to an end, just tell me what the end is and, and I can do it uh, if I want, but I don't need, uh, I don't need all of this to get there. And so that was, that was showing up quite a bit more along with people who were thrown. There there came a point where uh, for a long time, the big problem, for instance, with Christian kids going off to, college or university or their first jobs or the military or whatever would be that they, they find themselves in a bad crowd and and they start being drawn into that. I started to see more and more where the real problem was that Christian kids were saying, I've, I've got atheist and agnostic and Buddhist friends who seem to display the fruit of the spirit more than a lot of Christians I know. And so that leads them to a, a completely understandable uh, sense of, of crisis and often a completely understandable sense of anger. Um, and I, I think we have to show a, a better way for them. You also talked about having to do pastoral care uh, for kids because their parents found themselves intertwined in some you know, extremist conspiracy theories, some political over-identification as that shift started to take place, it seems like um, from from a distance watching your work over the past half decade or so, um, you found yourself speaking out against the way that our identity in the kingdom of God has been deteriorated and what has been exalted is our identification with either the left or more specifically for those of us conservative Christians in the South, um, Christians over-identifying with the right when that shift takes place and you're starting to speak out, it seems like a lot of the criticism that you received was because of talking about race and talking about the way that the the church has been over-identified with Trump and the Republican Party. Is that yes. a fair statement? Yeah, I think that uh, that race uh, connected to um, the Trumpism piece connected with sexual abuse uh, and scandal, those those. Three things were were very closely uh, interwoven, and when it comes to those young adults, uh, sometimes it's because, and I, I say it is rather than it was because that's ongoing. Sometimes it's that the parents or 
uh, mentors of, of some sort or the other are drawn into hardcore conspiracy theory, QAnon type stuff. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's not that. Sometimes it's just that the parents are so, or the mentors are so scared and obsessed with every conversation being with politics as a litmus test. And mm-hmm. there, there are uh, Christians who will say, look, uh, even sometimes they say, I agree with mom or dad or Uncle Johnny or, uh, or my, my mentor. I actually agree with them on the politics, but can't we have a human connection and talk about things that are more important than that? Um, that's, that's a real change. I mean, it's hmm. not a change that that's the, uh, that that is the temptation. I mean, I've been dealing with that really all of my ministry, that there's a, um, that there's a draw to that kind of idolatry of what feels most immediate. And in this kind of, uh, in this kind of culture, uh, politics, because it's a tribal identity badge, feels more immediate and more urgent than the Trinity uh, to people. And so it, it causes it to become outsized. And so if you just, just like with marriage, raising kids, uh, anything else, if the priorities are out of order, uh, you end up not only losing your, your soul in that, you end up also losing what it is you're trying to hold on to. Because it can't, it can't meet the promises that you're expecting from it. That seems to be a very um, orthodox, traditional Christian belief to say those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that you've dealt with this over your career. You're a couple years older than me, so you've been doing this for decades. Um, you get in trouble, though around 2016 or something like that, where people are criticizing you for not playing the game. You got to give these people 90% and you can have your 10%. Um, If you've been saying these things for years, what made this become so volatile as people responded to you saying something, which it sounds like you're articulating is something that you've been saying for years before? Well, I've, I've been saying the themes for years, but the context became uh, very different. And and you, it also, my sense of the depth of the problem uh, changed. So for, for most of my ministry, I would be speaking to those things. I mean, you can find that in Tempted and Tried, my uh, book from 2010, um, and, and various other places. But I tended to think that that was an exception uh, rather than, on the not on the periphery, but uh, but I would spend a lot of my time saying, no, 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 that's not what evangelical Christianity really uh, is. Uh, and then we came into a time in our, our country when everything was kind of upended. And one of the uh, one of the traumas that I think has come along with, you know, everything from the 2016 election to the COVID pandemic to uh, Black Lives Matter and the conversations coming out of that um, it is a sense of people saying, wait, I thought we were on the same page all along and we're not. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's really that's really a disorienting sort of time. And it's a it's a changed context. And, and that's not just the case in the church. That's that's the case 
really in almost every institution in American life. Hmm. You make the uh, statement in the book that uh, crazy is a church growth strategy now, yeah. and you connect it to the talking heads, the, the radio or TV people, and you describe what they're doing. This is the, the, the TV politics. Uh, political personalities where they don't give their people something to be enraged about, but they find out what people are already enraged about and they just talk about it more. And you say that many of us church leaders have the um, temptation to do the same thing. And many have succumbed to that temptation and just given into this sort of, um, I don't know, like fear mongering, crazy church growth strategy. How have you seen maybe some examples of, of what that looks like uh, specifically in churches? Well, you you will uh, often see um, a, a pastor who's been faithfully serving a congregation for years and years. Uh, Tim Alberta uh, mentioned several of these examples in a piece that he did for the Atlantic. Um, uh, I guess it was about six months, maybe maybe a year ago. Um and suddenly someone comes in uh, to the community who is saying uh, incendiary, outrageous things. And they're saying everyone's flocking there because it feels like conviction uh, when that's when that's taking place. That's not a that's not a new thing. I mean, th- this would have been uh, this was happening quite a bit in the 1970s and 1980s and, and 1990s where you would have some people who could build a church off of a really speculative um, uh, prophecy uh, teaching, for instance. And I can tell you um, what, how Revelation 18 is being fulfilled right now in the world around you. And people will come to that. I mean, that's a, that's a, a completely, that's a very old phenomenon. But now it has become secularized to the point where very rarely uh, do you see that in terms of some theological or even ministry claim, usually more built around some sort of politics or, or culture war. And what ends up happening is that you have a lot of people, and, and I spend my time saying to kind of people outside the church who are looking in, all the time, who think that the pastors are the ones driving a lot of this, to say, no, your typical congregation, uh, your pastor is sane, balanced, uh, godly, wants to serve Christ, and is in a very, very difficult situation. So I think there are a lot of people who who even think, well, I've got to do a little bit of that uh, if I'm going to survive in this kind of an attention economy, uh, but they find they can't do it well. Uh, and the reason they can't do it well is because that's not what they were, they were called to do. Their, their heart's not in it. And so mm-hmm. you end up then, my fear is uh, that we're going to end up with the same phenomenon happening in Congress uh, and in pastorates in which the people who are the most equipped and called to do the job uh, leave it and are replaced by uh, people who want to do something very uh, different and not healthy uh, for either one. So that's the, that's, the, that's the problem in front of us. And uh-huh. there are a lot, of, a lot of pastors that 
I talk to all the time who are saying, I'm just, I'm, I'm exhausted. That's the word that's most often used. I'm exhausted. Why do you think that they're saying they're exhausted? Because they've, they have to, um, there's one thing right after the other without any break uh, in between. And uh, I was with a group of pastors in, I think it was Philadelphia, and it, it's, it sticks with me all the time because one of the pastors said, yeah, what was it about 2021 that broke so many of us? And he talked about friends of his that uh, weren't in ministry anymore and so forth. And another pastor in the room said, and I, I think really wisely, I hadn't thought about it before then. He said, I think it's because up to that point, we thought, well, let's just get through this mm-hmm. and then we can go back to normal. And uh, a lot of people were thinking, you know, let's get through the 2016 presidential election and all that divisiveness. Or let's get through COVID. Let's get through the pandemic and, and get beyond all of this. And as this pastor pointed out, in 2021, that's when a lot of people looked around and said, oh, wait, we're not pressing through something. This is the new normal. Now, I don't think that has to be the new normal. Um, And I think that the exhaustion um, can be a a first step to it not being the new normal. But that's that's what has happened. And so that's that's ultimately very wearing down. A person can can push through almost anything if the person thinks, well, this is just for a limited time. But when you think, wait, is this what my entire life is about from now um, on? That's a different thing. It seems that if we try to function as we have functioned in the past, uh, it's not going to work because the polarization, the uh, the divided nature of our congregations, of our people, of our communities is just different now than it was before. And as you're describing how exhausted pastors are, I'm saying amen inside my head because that is the reality because there always feels like, okay, there's going to be something else or something else. And this is like an incessant level of strife that just exists with with people now. And it seems that we're just going, it's never going to change. Uh, one of the things I love about what you do early in the book is that you, you talk about solutions by going back to uh, Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm who instead of the typical response, the reactionary response to big problems as well as have a, a big solution, uh, he goes the opposite direction. And his suggestion is that great problems call for many small solutions. Yeah. Great problems call for many small solutions. Give us a small solution or two uh, that we could start looking towards. Well, I think that's the gen- genius, actually, of uh, evangelical Christianity. And it's what evangelical Christianity brings to uh, the larger church is this emphasis on the personal. Now that can become just like everything else that can become really unbalanced and become individual individualistic, but yeah. it really is pointing to something that is true. And it's also true that every big change that we've see, seen happen in the history of the church starts, um, starts very small. You know, with some people who are saying we're we're sensing that there's a problem and we don't know what to do about it. And I think that's the that's the second key is that there are a lot of people who, whenever they're facing some sort of a crisis, want, OK, let's have the seven step program to mm-hmm. get the American church back on track. Uh, that doesn't do it. 
And the reason it doesn't do it is because you you have to come to this point of being baffled in order to say, okay, the same carnal stuff uh, just done better is not going to pull us out of this. We really need uh, something else. We need we need God. We need the Spirit. We need revival. And so I think that with um, with individuals, a lot of what has to happen is watching yourself. And so, for instance, um, I'm less worried about when I'm talking to a 20-year-old uh, Christian on, on a college campus, I'm much less worried about uh, what what's he or she going to do to turn the church, capital C, around. As much as I am, how is this person going to cultivate attention and be in what what sounds like uh, Sunday school answers, but it's because Sunday school was right in terms of being in the scriptures, uh, being somebody who is uh, praying and who, who isn't going numb. And uh, that's where all of this starts. It's very, very personal. And then in congregations, as congregations start to say, uh, how do we recover something of uh, really understanding membership and of belonging to each other? I mean, the, the just recognizing we need to seek the Lord over how to do this, that's 90% of it right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's great. One of the other uh, small solutions you talked about in the book is that the antidote for authoritarianism is actually authority rightly defined. Can you briefly define what authority rightly defined would look like? Well, if you look at the, the authority of, of Jesus himself, it's an authority that isn't coming with uh, domination. It isn't coming with coercion. Uh, it's instead coming with the the open, as Paul puts it, the open proclamation of truth. So what Jesus is saying is true, but it's also that he is true. That there's a a personal credibility that comes with uh, with Jesus. That's part of what we see all through the the Gospels is the way people recognize that. And of course, I think that the Spirit of Christ uh, has breathed out the scriptures and speaking to us uh, in the scriptures. And so there's a, a way that, um, that, that understanding I'm actually under, um, under the scrutiny and, and authority of the scriptures can help to shake us out of uh, the, the chasing for some kind of authoritarianism. And, and that's not always in terms of uh, state uh, authoritarianism. Sometimes it's in terms of an authoritarian pastor or a church leader or something else. Um, that, that really, we have to understand where that comes from and where that usually comes from is from a sense of chaos and anarchy and believing that power, as defined in worldly terms, is the answer to that. And so we have to not say, okay, let's, because, and, and the reason I say that is because I'm, I'm often worried that, that we always overcorrect to the last bad thing in our lives, so whatever that so is. And so I think there's a tendency to say, because I've seen the way that authority has been 
misused, that that means that we need to run as far as we can from authority. No, we, we just need to understand where the ultimate authority actually is. Mm-hmm. Can I get you to uh, say a word to those who find themselves disenfranchised by church because it seems that church doesn't believe what it said is true. Uh, I, I love the way that you've made the differentiation between uh, the gospel's credibility not being affected um, by what's gone on uh, with the way that the church has become in many ways baptized into the way of the world. But you do talk about the way that the church's credibility as a witness to the gospel is clearly um, in question. And so for those who see the credibility of the church in question because of the ways that they have become more in the pattern of this world than being transformed by the gospel, what's a word for them to go, don't give up on church, don't walk away? What would you say to them? Well, what I would say is um, Jesus doesn't idealize uh, the church in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, he's He's telling us, he says, ahead of time uh, what will happen uh, so that we will not become uh, alarmed, as he, as he puts it uh, directly, mm-hmm. and then speaks to those uh, seven churches in, in Revelation. I would speak very differently to somebody who's wavering because of what they've seen from the church than I would from their church. You know, hmm. uh, I would say to their church, take responsibility and, and witness to Christ um, with repentance and faith and, and so forth. Uh, to the person, I would say, don't confuse Jesus with whatever, what, with whatever you see. And uh, you know, I was talking to somebody today who was saying, and we need to make sure that we let people know that we're not talking about uh, Jesus and me, uh, individualism. And I said, no. But it can feel like uh, Jesus and me for a little while. I mean, it's it's a normal thing for people to feel uh, lonely. Uh, Elijah is doing that. Uh, I'm the only one left. And God mm-hmm. says, no, you're not. There's 7,000 more over here and there's a lot more coming. So, uh, but... But that's a that's a normal thing to experience. So I would say don't don't lose heart and start uh, looking for people who can bring actual credibility in flawed, imperfect ways, uh, but but actually can can bring that to you. And usually I've found if a person can find a place to serve in some way or the other. Um, that that's the best thing for them. Why, um, why do you think service helps so much? I think because it's the it's the way that God has designed for us to belong. Uh, we're we're members of one another, which isn't just sort of abstract theory. It's that we actually need uh, one another, and so if you have somebody who's able to break free from the understanding of being a consumer, um, wh- whether by choice or not by choice, and actually is able to use the, the, the gifts of the Spirit, I've seen that make a, a huge difference. And what I would say to the people around that person who's disillusioned um, is to say, don't give up on them. Uh, it, it doesn't 
It doesn't mean because they're going through a dark night of the soul. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily losing their faith. Um, it it sometimes is just they're in that place where they're crying out, "Where are you, God?" I mean, we we've seen that quite a bit throughout the scriptures. Don't don't panic about that and don't give up on them. Hmm. Well, Dr. Moore, I, I'm grateful that uh, you might have written a book entitled Losing Our Religion, but you didn't lose your religion in spite of all the conflict and the strife that you went through. And uh, I'm grateful to know that you're at a good place now and uh, that you're uh, doing great. And this book, I believe, is going to be an encouragement to many people. Uh, I assume you're probably going to get a little bit of pushback um, from those who are not too happy about the way you've written it. Uh, but I think it's been... Uh, I think it's going to be great. Um, as you get ready for the book to come out, do you have any level of anxiety that's greater with this book than previous things that you've written? Not not really in terms of the book. I did in terms of writing it because there was quite a bit of, um, of uh, wrestling with myself as I was, as I was writing it. What, in what way were you wrestling with yourself? Well, just I was having to, I was having to talk about uh, some of the most vulnerable areas of my life, things that I would rather not talk about, but I had to in order to say, here's what the problem is. Um, and, and it's not just a big abstract problem. It's, it's, it's personal, uh, too, for people. So that was, um, a, a lot of, um, sort of thinking through and you know when you when you say oh there's some things here that that won't be well received just know i was holding back because this is the <laughs> this is the, <laughs> the the mild uh version of of saying what uh, what i think is happening and that the, i mean the first draft um the first draft was more about i need to um I need to really reflect on what I think uh, at this point. And by the time of the last draft, it was um, very different. Well, whenever the director's cut for the book comes out, uh, <laughs> make sure I get a copy of that. Uh, when you're writing about this stuff, did you have any PTSD come up? Did you have, yeah. did you find, yeah, you found yourself living back in the conflict? Yeah, that, that was, that was one of the things that was really difficult about it because I, I, um, when it comes to those sort of the setting the background stuff in, at the beginning, um, I've moved on uh, from that and don't uh, don't particularly like to rethink it or relive it, uh, but needed to. And yeah, that was that was difficult. Hmm. Well, I'm grateful you wrote the book, and uh, yeah, I'm, I I think it's going to be encouraging to a lot of people. And Dr. Moore, thank you for the time. It's been great to meet you. Oh, you as well. Thanks for having me. 